A writer named Franz Kafka, who was a Jewish man living in Prague just a hundred years ago, right now, completed a novel about a character that he calls Joseph K, and usually it's just K. And it's a famous story. The novel is called The Trial. In this novel, Kay wakes up one morning in his bed as usual, and he's living in a kind of rooming house where they always bring him breakfast, and he's expecting breakfast at any moment, and instead, two men in suits show up in his bedroom, and they tell him to get up, and they tell him that he's under arrest. This is the very first page of the novel. They tell him he's under arrest, and Kay is very concerned and very worried and said, says, you know, what's this all about? What did I do? What I'm charged with? And they said, well, we don't know what you're in charge with, but, but you're under arrest, so get up and get dressed. And so Kay gets dressed, and then he shows them uh, his identification papers, and they say, no, we don't care about your identification papers. We're not concerned who you are. We're just here to put you under arrest. And then pretty soon their supervisor comes and they have a little trial there in the a room next door to his bedroom and they say all kinds of legal things and Kay keeps saying, well, what am I, they never say what he's charged with. They just put, they just conduct this little trial and at the end of the trial they say, yes, you're definitely under arrest, but they don't take him anywhere and they just leave him there in his bedroom but they let him know that it's very serious and that it will be a long process and uh, he's under arrest and he's free to go to work. So in the next couple of days he gets a letter in the mail and the letter says you need to come to court on Sunday and there's an, an address but there isn't any time when he's supposed to come. So on Sunday he gets up and he goes to this address and it's an apartment building a kind of de decrepit old apartment building, and he doesn't know where the court is, so he starts kind of wandering through the halls of the apartment building, seeing if he can find the court. And finally, he gets to the attic of this old, broken-down apartment building, and he goes in this door, and there's this court in this kind of shabby, broken-down attic, and there's a judge and everything. And they have a long hearing and they never tell him what his arrest is about or what he's charged with or any information about his case whatsoever. It's, all, it's a secret, actually, is the answer. It's a secret what your case is about, but it is very serious, and you have to take it very seriously. And for some reason, which Kay doesn't really understand, he decides to make a long speech about how unjust this is. And this, the, it just keeps getting... Well, as he's making this speech, there's a little kind of um, romantic sexual thing going on with some people over in the corner. And this, this becomes a recurring theme in the courts is that there are various kinds of uh, strange activities going on. And then when he gets to the end of the speech, he realizes that maybe he didn't really do the right thing because he denounced the system and he goes back home, and so things like this just keep happening throughout the whole novel, and it becomes ever more absurd and dreamlike. 
His case is being handled by a vast bureaucracy and there are notices and there are updates and eventually he gets his lawyer, but a lawyer doesn't know what he's charged with either and cannot tell him anything about his case except the lawyer says, I am very well connected. <laughs> and so I'm a good lawyer and you should be happy about that. But there's never any information and it, you get a whole series of these strange incidents and the sexual theme comes back interwoven uh, with the legal theme. And eventually Kay meets a painter and the painter tells him that he's seen these cases before and no one is ever acquitted. So that's the information he gets from a painter. And so we get a continuing series of these strange incidents and then after a year, after all this absurdity, the two men come back one day and take him off to a, a quarry where they place his head on a block. And Kay is waiting for what's going to happen. And then he realizes that he is actually, he realizes that they expect him to kill himself, which he doesn't do, but they eventually stab him in the heart. And the case is over. Kafka's classic book, The Trial, is thought to be related to an actual case that he was involved in in some way. But whether or not it's an actual case, Kafka paints a picture, which has become a classic in Western literature, of a justice system that is arbitrary, remote, closed off, secretive, grossly unfair, corrupt, in which justice is nowhere to be found, and acquittal is impossible. Have a nice day. <laughs> In the last few months, I have found myself reading two books about the trials of a young American woman who was accused of murdering her roommate while they were both students in Italy. Amanda Knox is her name. You've probably seen her in the news at some point. I've read two books about her. One is her story, and the other one is uh, written by an investigator. And I have found that this case sort of reminds me of Joseph K. in certain ways. Though there was never any physical evidence linking her to this crime of killing her roommate, the police and prosecutor claimed they had physical evidence and the court made it difficult to challenge their claims. Without realizing that she was a suspect, this young woman, who was 20 years old at the time, was questioned without any legal counsel for long periods of time in a bullying manner, including intentional lying to her about physical facts and including some physical abuse as well although the police do not agree that that happened. And finally, this young woman caved in and gave a sort of semi-confession in which she implicated herself at, as being at the crime scene and another person as well being there who may have done the murder. Even though those things were not true, she admitted that they were true, even though they were not in fact true. By the way, if anybody has a different view on this, let's, we'll go over to Panera's and we'll talk it over, okay? The prosecutor put forth the theory that she and two young men, this is the prosecutor's story, 
that she and two young men had forced the victim, a young Englishwoman, to engage in a satanic sexual orgy on Halloween. It was on Halloween. And when the victim refused, they slit her throat. That was the prosecutor's version of the story. That she was a sex-crazed murderer with, belonging to some sort of satanic ritual. The Italian papers went ballistic. It was like Christmas time for them to have a story like that. And so for months and months, there were pictures of her all over papers in Europe of this um, satanic sexual killer. And after a year of jail time and trial, Amanda Knox and her boyfriend were convicted of murder and she was given 28 years in prison. Even though another man was already in jail for the murder whose DNA was all over the crime site and also inside the body of the victim. Whereas no DNA whatsoever was found of hers. Nothing at the crime site. Although there was a dispute about some evidence that they claimed was DNA of hers that was eventually thrown out. So there was zero physical evidence in this case. From reading her book, I think Amanda Knox, who is a fascinating character, and by the way, is exactly the kind of person who would kind of fit into this church, really, personality-wise, not the satanic sex part. That would not fit into this church. But from reading this sequence of events, I really think that she had a similar sense of confusion as Joseph K. did. Like, what's, what's happening? What, what's going I don't understand. I literally don't understand what's going on. How could this be happening? Was her most constant question. How could this be happening? And by the way, both Joseph K. and Amanda Knox share the feature that because they were innocent, they believed it would all turn out well. I think this is a fascinating thing. Because they were innocent, they believed it would, it, that, you know, it would eventually go their way because people are good and you know, everybody is well-intentioned. But it's really true that events to her seem bizarre, surreal, impossible, dreamlike shadowy. So she was convicted and sent to prison for 28 years, but there was an appeal, and on appeal her conviction was overturned, and the appeal court said, by the way, that there was no physical evidence whatsoever linking her to the crime. She was set free from jail um, after four years, and she was free to go home to Seattle, which she did. Unlike the United States and Italy, the prosecution can appeal too. So in the United States, once you've been acquitted, you can't be tried again. But in Italy, you can. And so she was um, sent to trial again, although she didn't go. She stayed in Seattle, and she was convicted again. She was convicted again upon the appeal of the prosecution and went through that whole process. And then finally... On the final appeal to the Italian Supreme Court, 
Just last month, she and her boyfriend were, de were declared to be innocent of all charges by the Italian Supreme Court. And it's over. It was seven years. It was seven years. Justice was finally done. And there can be no further appeals by anyone. It's finished. Amanda Knox has publicly declared that she will work for other innocent people who have been wrongfully convicted. Now, her biggest problem was that under intense, high-pressure, psychologically bruising interrogation techniques, she confessed to being at the scene of the crime, which, in fact, she wasn't, but she confessed to it. And she implicated another person who wasn't there either. For those of us, including myself, who find it difficult to understand how someone could possibly confess to something we didn't do, would you do that? Would you confess to a crime you didn't commit? I just ask you that question. Would you do that? Please watch a documentary film by Ken Burns, the foremost documentary filmmaker in the United States, at least, called The Central Park Five. Please go watch that film. And in that film, you get to follow the interrogation of five teenage boys, all either black or Latino, who were bullied into confessing that they beat and raped the woman known as the Central Park Jogger. You may have heard that story, I bet you have. Watch that film and watch how it works. Put under enough pressure, many people will confess to something. And we might do it too. I might do it. I don't know. I've never been there. But it happens. It happens. So people do confess to crimes that they, they haven't committed. Part of the technique is to create so much psychological stress that people feel like they are in a surreal world like Kafka's world. Create that feeling in people, a world that is totally against them, in which the only possible hope is to just give in. A world of no escape. There's no way out, except to do what we want you to do. That's the only way out. And so people often take that way out. In our country, um, boy, I've got, I've got my lawyer friends in the room, so they're probably going to take me to the cleaners here in about 10 minutes. But I'm preaching the truth as I see it. In our country, we are taught that everyone is entitled to a fair trial, right? We all learned that in grade school. Before a jury of our peers, I was just on jury duty, by the way, so I know that that goes on down at the courthouse. And that everyone has that right to a fair trial and a jury trial and so forth. The reality is hardly any cases are ever tried by juries. Hardly any. I don't know, it's like 5% or 10%, something like that. Almost every criminal case in the United States is completed by a plea bargaining process. In which the most powerful person is the prosecutor. And judges, well, we'll hear, you know, we can all debate this, but at least according to some folks, I've read judges are not the powerful people in the system. 
The prosecutors are the powerful people because they make a deal with the accused. And the deal is put together many times so that you can't refuse that deal. There's an overwhelming temptation to take the deal. Because if you take the deal, you get some limited amount of punishment or time. But if you don't take the deal, smart prosecutors can multiply the charges against you. So that if you go to court, you may be rolling the dice on 20 years if you lose. Because there's a lot of charges piled up on you. But if you take the deal, it's only three years. Now, as a rational person, you would have to ask yourself, would I take the three and leave? Or would I roll the dice on the 20? So you can see why a lot of people would take deals, right? And it's a, it's a system that works uh, in certain ways well. Certain amount of the people who take those deals are innocent. But it still may be a rational choice for them. Do you see why it might be a rational choice? When you just look at the odds of success in various situations. Uh, Michelle Alexander, in her book, The New Jim Crow, estimates the number of innocent people in prison in the tens of thousands. In the tens of thousands. And, of course, juries make mistakes, too. I mean, people are, well-meaning people can make mistakes. There's an organization called the Innocence Project, which I want to tell you about. It's a group that uses DNA testing and other scientific testing, which is now much more sophisticated than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, to help free innocent prisoners. So far, they have helped to exonerate 329 innocent prisoners who were proven to be innocent by DNA evidence or had their cases thrown out who spent an average of 14 years each in prison. 329. They have also helped to locate 140 people who actually committed the crime but were not in prison. So that's called the Innocence Project. I gave you their website. I recommend you take a look at them. This morning's Journal Star, page 12, has an article that has just come out about how the FBI has admitted that there have been numerous human errors in the testing of hair samples over the last few decades by FBI laboratories, all of them virtually in favor of the prosecutions. And they have admitted that there have been lots of errors. A spokesperson for the Innocence Project called the testing a complete disaster. Now, people make mistakes. I'm not saying nobody can ever make a mistake. In my life, I have personally known several judges, a large number of lawyers, including one prosecutor, several public defenders, and some police officers as well. And without exception, all those people I have personally known seem to me to be good and decent people. They really do. And actually, there are a few of them in this room at this very moment who I have a high regard for. But the system 
that all these wonderful people serve has serious flaws. And for one of them, we know something that is almost at this point beyond any dispute, that our system is racially biased. That at the moment is almost beyond dispute. And it's being talked about all over this country. The racial bias of the, this criminal justice system does not treat white, black, and Latino people the same. I'd rather tell you that we have freedom and justice for all, but it's not the same. In Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, she has changed the conversation on racial bias with the tremendous research she's done and the horrible effects of the drug laws. And every week, we hear a new story involving young black men being shot. This is heartbreaking. This is heartbreaking. Video cameras are the reason we know about these events. Actually, a change in technology. Just like the change in technology and DNA brought forth a whole new way of evaluating guilt and innocence. Cameras are changing the justice system, perhaps as much as DNA testing has changed the justice system. So now we have this parade of these heartbreaking incidents, but they're known. They're on tape. And so there's going to be a, a reform here. There is going to be a reform. I, it, it, there's no other possible thing that can happen, I don't think. Things are actually going to get better because technology is going to force the issue. Cameras, DNA, different kinds of testing are going to change this world. But I will bet that for young black and Latino men and women who get stopped disproportionately, the whole world has that tinge of that Kafka novel, where it's just surreal, you know? Where justice seems distant, and there doesn't seem to be reasons for everything that happens. And one is wondering why. And we hear this, this weekend, we heard uh, Rosemary Bray McNett, who is the president of one of our seminaries and who spoke from this pulpit on the night of our building dedication. Do you remember the woman who spoke? The night we dedicated this building, Rosemary Bray McNett, who is an African-American woman who is the president of Star King Theological Seminary. And she spoke before us uh, Friday night, and she said she had just talked to her son, and she had gone over with her son the rules that black parents teach their kids what to do if they get stopped. And she went over it. Keep your hands visible at all times. Don't reach for anything. Do not give that officer any guff whatsoever. Just say, yes, sir. Be completely compliant. Don't do anything that would give that man an excuse. Don't do anything. 
because you know what it's like out there. And every black parent tells their kids that. Because they know what's happening. So she was describing to us this conversation she has with her son over and over again. And internationally, court systems are all over the place too, and many are much worse. And our system isn't even a bad system. It's just not at the level it needs to be. There are many problems all over the world, but the strange Kafka-esque truth is that we incarcerate more people than any country in the world. More than any country. How could, that's, that's like Kafka to me. How, could, how do we, where do you put that information in your mind? Is there a category you have in there for that kind of information? Strange, but maybe true. One of the crucial elements of the good life is the sense of living in a safe space. At least to not be worried about being arrested for no reason or a flimsy reason and subjected to an unfair justice system. Kafka in this classic novel paints a picture of what that feels like. This, that's what he's doing. He's painting a picture of what it feels like to be in a system that has no rhyme or reason and where somebody shows up in your bedroom when you're expecting breakfast, you know, and of course we're invited to think that this might be a dream, but it isn't a dream. He paints that picture. And Amanda Knox, by the way, also gives a powerful account of what she felt like during the process when she actually lost her sense of reality for a while and really didn't know what was going on. She was so confused by people intentionally trying to confuse her. She is a very expressive person, by the way, which was one of the qualities that made her seem guilty to people. She didn't act the way she was supposed to act. And so her account is fascinating too, and I thank goodness that the Italian system finally got that one right after seven years. I am happy about that. That is a hopeful thing. Solzhenitsyn says that justice is not just personal, but it's something we all have to commit to. We all have to make that commitment. There is a huge discussion going on in our country about justice right now. It's just amazing how much is being talked about. This morning in the Journal Star, page 12, DNA evidence hair testing, Vizio cameras, and the deluge of cases involving young black men in particular have just put this question right in front of us, just right in front of us. There's nowhere to go to not see this question. Are we going to be a land of freedom and justice for all? Or are we going to settle for a world that over-incarcerates, discriminates, and drastically needs an overhaul of policing techniques. And you know what, I'm gonna say once again, this is not a problem of a bunch of mean, nasty people 
doing these things. It really isn't. The people I know are doing good work, and they care. But we are caught up in systemic patterns that we have to become conscious of and then change them. We have to do that. By ourselves, we can't fix this problem. But if we each make a commitment to justice in our hearts, then we will find the ways to create change. And I put some, don't pick up your order of service at this moment, but I put some websites in there for you to look at. And there's a wonderful organization in Peoria called PCAV, which our own uh, Brad Adams is very active in. Is Brad in the room at the moment or did he go teach Sunday school? Yes, he went to teach. Talk to Brad Adams, and if you don't know who he is, I will corral him in coffee hours so that you can talk, talk to him about PCAV. And we can find ways to participate in this. They are open to us right now, every day. This is hopeful. I, this is hopeful. Because all these things are coming out and a light is being shined on events, this is full of hope. Maybe not for a lot of individuals, but overall, it's full of hope. This is a movement that is growing all over this country. Will we be part of that movement? Yes, we will. I guarantee it.